This morning is the final Sunday of Black History Month, an annual reminder to spend some time reflecting on our past through the lens of African-American experiences. Black History Month is also a reminder to remember that history is never neutral. It is always told from some point of view, even if that point of view isn't acknowledged. And when it's not acknowledged, it's usually white. Let me give you an example of what I mean. If you sign up for a class on African-American history, you know what you're signing up for. If you sign up for a class on women's history, Latin American history, queer history, there is truth in advertising. But too many courses simply have the allegedly neutral title, history. You're just taking a history course. When that might be better called white, rich, heterosexual, able-bodied male history, for the most part. The truth is, as Jen talked about some in the spoken meditation, that it matters what stories we choose to tell, who decides, and crucially, who benefits. Along these lines, a few months ago, I preached a sermon inspired by the writings of Dr. Ibram Kendi, the founding director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center here in American University in Washington, D.C. They're doing really exciting and incredible work. I recommend his work highly and would say start with his shorter and more accessible book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. He actually just put out a children's book, too, so you could start with that. It's even shorter and even more accessible. And I want to take the risk of sharing with you uh, quite a provocative tweet from Dr. Kendi that powerfully reflects this truth we're looking into, that honesty about historical perspective matters. As someone who has dedicated his life to helping us better tell the stories of racism and to better tell the stories of anti-racism, Dr. Kendi posted the following two tweets, the first of this month, as an example of interpreting current events from the perspective, not of neutral history, allegedly, but of black history. Tweet number one. On this first day of Black History Month, I can't stop thinking about black history as I recall 51 senators refusing to allow witnesses and documents last night. I can't stop thinking about how so many obviously guilty white men have gone free over time, right? Tweet number two. I can't stop thinking about historically to be black in this country is to be a criminal even when we are obviously innocent. I can't stop thinking about this Jim Crow trial from the standpoint of black history. I find that perspective so powerful of adding the depth dimension of history to the prophetic condemnation of current events. Dr. Kendi is challenging us to see this recent episode that it's not an isolated incident. It is one in a, it is another in a long line of injustices supporting what Bell Hooks called the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. The stories that we tell matter. Do the stories that we have been taught and the stories that then, we don't have control over that, right? But then the stories that we ourselves choose to repeat and to share? Do they help raise awareness of marginalized groups? Do they help dismantle oppressions? Or do the stories we have been taught and that we ourselves choose to repeat, do they help maintain injustices in the status quo or even to increase inequity? 
This idea that we have a choice in the stories that we tell and how we tell them, it isn't something that at least I thought much about growing up in South Carolina. I thought history was history. I thought it was dry facts to be memorized and regurgitated back on a test if you were lucky enough to remember what you were trying to memorize. A turning point came when I had the opportunity to go on a backpacking trip along the Pacific Coast Trail with a friend I had grown up with in South Carolina, but he had moved to Houston for our senior year in high school, so I hadn't really spent much time with him since he had left. After the trip, we were wandering around Seattle and happened to stumble upon an independent bookstore. It's still there if you happen to be going to Seattle. It's called Left Bank Books. It specializes in anti-authoritarian, anarchist, independent, radical, and small press titles. I needed a book to read for the, you know, as you do. Uh, I needed a book to read for the flight home, and as we meandered through the aisles of the bookstore, my friend asked, hey, have you ever read Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States? Because he had grown up in that high school with me, and he knew kind of what the curriculum was like. And he said, you know, when I went to Texas, I was actually required to read Howard Zinn's book as a supplement to the standard history textbook. And I, I hadn't in South Carolina. Fortunately, the bookstore had a copy, and I read on the back cover that this history book chooses to tell the story of our country um, from the point of view and in the words of America's women, factory workers, African Americans, Native Americans, the working poor, and immigrant laborers. My friend was right. It was a powerful book that I've thought of frequently since. Has anybody read it or part of it? It's pretty long. All right, good. Uh, the stories we tell matter. Who is telling the story? Who decides? Who benefits? There's a good reason that my friend's history teacher in Houston chose to assign Zen's people's history to augment that state's uh, history textbooks. Because our nation's history, it is not taught the same way in every state across this nation, as you may be well aware. For instance, has any of you read the analysis the New York Times published about a month ago? It examined, it was pretty long, it was like 22 pages uh, uh, online, how a standard high school uh, textbook from the widely used publisher McGraw-Hill is altered in various ways in editions suitable for each state's board of ed. I'll give you a few examples. In a section about the Bill of Rights, the California edition of the same textbook includes a sidebar annotation detailing that court rulings on the Second Amendment have sometimes allowed for some gun regulations. In the same place, in the same textbook, the Texas edition is blank. You know, that annotated sidebar is blank. But if you're just reading that Texas book and not comparing it, you just think that was blank space. You wouldn't know that information was being withheld from you. Or related to black history, here's an instance of Texas adding a line that isn't present in either the California edition or the standard edition. Instead of taking something out, they wanted to add something in. Quote, teenagers in both states will learn about the Harlem Renaissance and debates about the movement's impact in, on African American life. But Texas students only will read that some critics, quote, dismissed the quality of literature produced. It doesn't add, and those critics were racist, <laughs> but, you know, that would be my addition. Uh, another example is that California notes the suburban dreams of the 1950s was inaccessible to many African Americans. You know, that kind of nostalgia. California doesn't have that part. Whole paragraphs on redlining and restrictive deeds appear only in the California edition of textbooks. Texas's social study guidelines do not mention housing discrimination at all. 
Both states say that breaches of racial etiquette led to lynchings after Reconstruction, but only California makes clear that the perpetuators of lynchings also hoped that they were doing them to discourage black political and economic power. One of my best friends is a high school history teacher in South Carolina. She accounts for similar issues by making her students read primary sources. Because when they read secondary sources, they contend about like what was the motivation for the Civil War. Then when you read Jefferson Davis saying, the Civil War, we did it because of slavery, you're like, it's kind of hard to argue with that, right? But not every teacher does that. The stories we tell matter. They, they shape us, and they shape how we are in the world. To adapt the words of author Brian McLaren, are we telling stories of social control or are we telling stories of social transformation? Are we telling stories to hold people down or are we telling stories to lift all people up? Are our history books more of an opiate to pacify people into compliance or are they a stimulant to empower people to imagine a better world, a better future, a better life? giving them the courage to live in peaceful deviance of violent, corrupt, and greedy powers that be. Our call for such a time as this is to be better storytellers of social transformation and solidarity with the marginalized, better tellers of tales that inspire ourselves and others to build the world we dream about, a world with peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, but for all. Here's another example that relates back to Julia's important sermon last Sunday about the lessons she learned spending a week in UU Tulsa at uh, the, lar the world's largest in-person UU congregation in Tulsa, Oklahoma, right? Go back and look at that sermon if you missed it. In her sermon, Julia shared about the Tulsa Race Massacre in 1921, which is a suppressed story in particular in Oklahoma and also more generally in our country. Many citizens in this country, especially in Oklahoma, have grown up with history books that skipped over that tragedy. The good news is this past Wednesday, maybe Julia's sermon was more impactful than she thought, uh, uh, there was an announcement in Oklahoma that they will be moving forward with embedding that story of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre into the curriculums of all Oklahoma schools. And while some school districts have already begun teaching about the massacre, the state's uh, Department of Ed will be releasing a curriculum framework this April to bolster these efforts and support them throughout the state. Starting this fall, students from elementary through high school will learn about the event. I suspect there are at least two reasons behind this shift. One, I, I think HBO's Watchmen that I mentioned, if you, you know that first episode, I think that actually is helping raise popular awareness of this event. Even more importantly, it happened in 1921. We're coming up on the 100th anniversary, which also is something that, that raises awareness. So a future sermon likely forthcoming on that occasion. Maybe we'll do it together. We'll talk about it. Uh, Part of what I've done this Black History Month for my own edification is to set aside time to read the book An African American and Latinx History of the United States, which is kind of what some of what um, Steve's trying to do with the music is to blend together these traditions. It's by Paul Ortiz, a professor of history at the University of Florida. It's the, actually the fourth in a series called Revisioning American History from our own Beacon Press that's owned by the Unitarian Universalist Association. Over the past few years, I've preached on previous, I've preached 
preach previous sermons about books in that series on a queer history of the United States, a disability history of the United States, an indigenous people's history of the United States. You can either go read those books yourselves, you can go back and look at those sermons it's in our online archive if you miss them. A fifth book in the series was just published earlier this month, A Black Woman's History of the United States. I look forward to sharing with you about that book, likely around this time next year. For now, there's a lot to be said about Paul Ortiz's and African-American and Latinx history of the United States. I'll limit myself to just a few representative examples. He is particularly valuable for the ways that he moves across national borders. My uh, Latina history professor in seminary used to say, Borders are wounds. You know, they are, they are wounds that we have carved into our political consciousness. Uh, and so what Ortiz was trying to do is to hi he highlights, for example, this kind of complex tapestry of history. He points out, for instance, that the Mexican abolition of slavery is often neglected in the 19th century telling of U.S. history. Uh, but the truth is that in 1829, more than three decades before enslavement was ended in the U.S., the U.S., we like to, we have this tale of U.S. exceptionalism, we're the best or whatever, but three decades before we ended enslavement, Mexico did on the anniversary of Mexican Independence Day. I, I love that Mexico linked their country's freedom from Spain to individual people's freedom from slavery. They're saying it's the same fight for liberation. Moreover, after the Mexican abolition of slavery, when we in the U.S. attempted to negotiate a fugitive slave treaty with Mexico for the, quote, surrender of such fugitive slaves as might seek refuge on the soil of that republic, the Mexican Congress not only rejected appeals from our Congress, but also denounced the continued practice of slavery in the U.S. or elsewhere as, quote, a palpable violation of the first principles of a free republic. Go Mexico. <laughs> Even more importantly, I love this example of learning to tell our history better by weaving in this Mexican perspective. A similarly neglected story is that in 1791, the enslaved people of the then Saint Domingo um, led history's only successful slave revolt. A few years later, in 1804, the revolutionaries christened their new nation Haiti. That'll be our postlude, will be um, about this event, in honor of the original indigenous inhabitants of the island. In our own country, there was a lot of fear by slave owners that Haiti's slave revolt was going to inspire a slave revolt here as it should. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, hypocritically forgetting everything he had written in the U.S. Declaration of Independence, uh, first tried to undermine the slave uprising in Haiti, then after his success, urged Napoleon Bonaparte to re-enslave the upstart Haitians. The stories we tell matter. We need to tell the full truth about Jefferson, which includes both great things and terrible things, which I've, we've explored in previous sermons. And we need to be more familiar with these powerful stories of oppressed groups all over the world throwing off the yoke of oppression. Paul Ortiz, reflecting on all he has learned in decades of researching and writing about and teaching about an African-American and Latinx history of the United States, writes that if we begin to perceive that American exceptionalism is a harmful fable, then what do we replace it with? What's a better story to tell? He says we can begin by continuing to learn more about ordinary people's capacity to create democracy in action, the capacity of workers, of immigrants, and marginalized people to organize for social change. 
Dada Ortiz also points to a quote from Frederick Douglass as a touch point that Douglass wrote in the wake of the 1863 Emancipation Proclamation. He said, we are not to be saved by the captain at this time, but by the crew. We are not to be saved by Abraham Lincoln, but by that power behind the throne that is greater than the throne itself. Douglas and Ortiz after him are cautioning us to beware of the great man theory of history, that all that really matters is what the elites do. Although President Lincoln's words were important, the actions of a multitude of people were needed to turn those words into a reality and also helped make it possible for him to say those words in the first place. That's the kind of history I want to continue to get better at telling. And here's the thing. A focus not on the elite, not on the king, but on we the people, that is a foundational American value. Remember that powerful opening part of the second sentence in our Declaration of Independence that governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the king of England? No, from the consent of the governed, right? In a time when history was often told from a perspective supporting the divine right of kings, asserting the consent of the governed, consent culture, right? It's really important. That was radical. That was getting radical to the root of things. From this people's perspective, I do think we can look backward in our country's past to be reminded of some of our core values and ideals and aspirations. But I also need to be honest here on the uh, last Sunday of Black History Month that from the perspective of black history, it's quite clarifying in reminding us to see afresh that we cannot be content with a nostalgic longing to go backward in time. It's just not possible from a perspective of black history. Black History Month, I think it is fair to say, is not in alignment with a call to make America great again. That longing arises from the corrupted nostalgia of white supremacy and male supremacy. Instead, if you look back at the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, he doesn't call us to make America great again. Dr. King says, quote, if America is to be a great nation. If America is to be a great nation, let freedom ring. Right? That we are unfree right now. We have been unfree. And he goes on to list all the places across this country. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring if we are to truly be free at last. If our nation is truly to ever become great. When Dr. King spoke these words on the National Mall, I suspect he had in mind the final stanzas of Langston Hughes's poem written almost three decades earlier. Hughes, too, rejected a malignant nostalgia of looking back fondly on a past in which not everyone was free. Writing out of the experience of living through black history, Hughes calls us to a future with hope. He writes, let America be American again, the land that never has been yet and yet must be, the land where every man is free. Oh, yes, say it plain, he says, writing from black history, America was never America to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be. And don't miss the power of this final stanza that so tragically and accurately describes our nation, sadly, 85 years after Hughes first penned these words. 
he ends, out of the rack and ruin of our gangster death, the rape and rot of graft and stealth and lies. We, the people, must redeem the land, the mine, the plants, the rivers, the mountains, and the endless plain, all, all the stretch of these great green states, and make America again. As we continue to reflect on those words and how we feel called, either individually or collectively, within our spheres of influence and the places where we choose to make our influence, whether it's wanted or not, to work in coalition for collective liberation. Please rise in body or spirit. Let's sing together a song made famous by Nina Simone about everyone getting free. Hymn 151. <laughs> 